The Captain and the Miracle by Edna Wallert McCourt Short Story Collection 101 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Captain and the Miracle the captain had been in and about the trenches three years before he crossed the Atlantic. And yet, although there were apparently hordes of us Americans who were eager and able to talk French with him, he could not be persuaded to speak of himself personally or of his intimate experiences. There was rumor of much that he might have told, months in the thick of the fight, shrapnel wounds, and, during convalescence, heroic defense of a church hallowed by the Red Cross and bombarded by the enemy. There was a report of promotion and transfer to the Engineering Corps, of consultations and conferences with the highest authorities of France, of his mission to the United States to purchase gasoline. Yes, there was gossip of much that he might have told, but I was given to understand that before he came to Oklahoma he had been strangely silent on the subject of his own history. Of course, I had my doubts about his irrevocable reticence, as a plain, cool-headed prospector who had been up and down and around and across the continent for half a century I had yet to meet the man whose tongue would not wag briskly and with even astonishing eloquence when given as a theme the history of its possessor. Even a dumb man, I believed, would manage to convey to any willing listener a chronicle of his own little story. But our senator assured me this was not the case with the captain. I've been with him in New York and in Washington, and we were on the same train coming down here, he said. It is a fact, true as the seasons, that the captain doesn't mix himself up in his talk of the cause. I've seen him under a good many different circumstances, too, and I've heard all sorts and sexes cross-question him in all grades of French. But I assure you, he clung to the big issues like a cactus to the sand. When they got him in an exceptionally tight spot, he would actually say, Qu'importe moi-même, je ne signifie rien, il n'y a que la cause. Which means, in American English, that he himself doesn't matter, that nothing matters but the cause of France. My skepticism clung, however. Give him the time and the place, and he'll loosen up, I insisted. Perhaps. But the senator smiled a slightly superior smile. It was plain he didn't agree with me. Now, I was particularly anxious just then to obtain information about certain activities of the extra-congressional session, just adjourned, so the senator and I changed the subject, and I rather forgot about the captain until the following night. The senator was home, campaigning for the Liberty Loan. 
In the hills and the inhabited districts of our state, he had been more than successful in securing subscriptions. But he was a man who knew his people and was therefore not sanguine of happy results in my county, which is the county of Flathead and one of the richest and youngest oil centers in the world. Incidentally, the captain, who was with us to investigate our gasoline prospects, was as fascinated as a boy or a poet with the history of Oklahoma, and he urged the senator for all manner of details. He wanted to hear all about the portioning of the territory by the United States government to the various Indian tribes, all about the miraculous mint of oil treasure which suddenly gushed from the barrenness, making millionaires of the outcast red men. C'est une fable, une légende de fille, the captain vowed. Le bon Dieu a eu à fait de celui-là. When the senator translated that the captain felt our oil fields were God-given, so to speak, to the Indians in compensation for the white man's usurpation of his bigger dominion, I said, Seems like the captain is a pious chap, and the senator smiled again, a slightly superior smile. He didn't agree with me. There never was a less orthodox man, he replied. As I said, the senator was campaigning for the Liberty Loan. A mass meeting had been called at the county seat of Flathead that Saturday night, and he was to be the principal speaker. He confided to me that he considered his task a pretty onerous and difficult one, and I confess I felt no desire to stand in his stockings. It was, for the most part, a hard crowd which assembled, hard-headed, hard-lipped, True, it was composed of men who made and held money lightly, but at this particular moment every John Smith wanted to sink what lucre he possessed into new oil holes. The men had come in for forty miles around, willing to flock to the county's center at the slightest excuse for gathering the slightest pretense of carouse. True, we were bone dry, but who would drink could. The roads, dusty as though strewn foot deep with tawny flour, began early to line up automobiles, and our so-called square began to blacken with people. A sort of speaker stand had been knocked together to accommodate the band the senator had imported and the leading citizens and there was a chair for the captain. I said to him, he seemed to understand pretty nearly everything spoken in English, Anyone who says the Wild West days are over doesn't know. This is as typical a boomtown as ever sprung up overnight, and as typical a crowd as ever created and lost millions except for the fact that the boys tear around on Fords instead of Broncos and in goggles instead of Shaps, you might be watching a William S. Hart film tonight. And the captain did watch. He watched the men who had assembled, 
watched their hard faces and the softness veiled by their eyes, watched the grim, cynical curve of their lips and the gentle something that lurked in the corners, watched the bold poise of their shoulders and the gnarled fingers he seemed to sense could twitch and tighten with emotion. And somehow the eyes of that crowd began to pivot about him. I confess he was unusual to look upon, solemn and boyish and uplifted. And bits of his mission and his story had filtered through the masses, naturally haloing him to our elemental and therefore hero-worshipping crew. The senator spoke splendidly. The effort he made to arouse that crude crowd to patriotic response was magnificent. He played to their emotions and their intelligence. He appealed to their sympathy and their loyalty. He frankly avowed the nation's need for money. He let his voice range from fortissimo through tremolo and back again. He put himself through all the conventional gestures, his vocabulary through every pace, from flowery oratory to good USA slang. He both begged and bullied the boys to come up to the Liberty Loan booth, which he had had built on the platform, and subscribe, subscribe. But though the audience did clap and cheer him, the senator knew, as he resumed his seat, that he had failed. Exuberant spirits, not conviction of the men themselves, created the shouting. He knew they would hold on to their money. The band crashed into the star-spangled banner. But he murmured as he wiped the evidence of effort from his face. They are going to pony up. Those boys are neither fools nor leaves of an aspen to bend to my will. Only a few months ago I was haranguing them to vote for Wilson because he was going to keep us out of the war. And now I'm trying to get them to fork over their good money in order to make war. They see the illogicalness of my position. I haven't been able to put over the deep necessity, I guess, he muttered. I've lost my hold on this bunch. It'll take a bigger man than me to move them now. His eyes, genuinely troubled, scanned the strange crowd, and then, unconsciously, veered to the captain. Swift as thought, an inspiration came to the senator. As I said, he knew his people. Psychologist, politician, bulldog. He suddenly gripped the captain's knee, and all pretense was gone, and any barrier of tongue. There was no French for the senator. Captain, his eyes had become incandescent. Captain, you've got to make a speech. You're going to make a speech. You're going to win that granitic bunch for me. You're going to make them buy the bonds. You're going to talk to them. The captain looked mildly astonished for a moment, but then he smiled, amused. 
He thought, of course, the senator was joking. But the senator was deadly serious. His knuckles whitened as he gripped the Frenchman's knees harder, and the muscles under the skin of his jaws moved determinedly like little waves of light. You're going to talk to them, man, he repeated between his teeth. You're going to get them. They've got to come across. You've got to bring them. The captain understood then, but he was completely taken aback, even pathetically frightened. Moi? he exclaimed. Mais non. Mais je ne peux pas le faire. Je n'ai pas le vocabulaire. Je n'ai pas de... But the senator interrupted with what were rudeness had it not been earnestness. Talk American, and don't say you can't. Don't think you can't. You've got to make a speech to these fellas. That's all there is to it. You've caught their eye. They'll be putty in your hands. I know. Haven't I been studying crowds for thirty years? The captain had turned white as his teeth. Mais je ne peux pas, he stammered. I cannot. I do not speak the English. Je ne peux pas. But the senator's square jaws only clicked impatiently. You've got to, he repeated. And then, you've got to make a speech, he repeated again. Beseechingly, the captain looked at me, but I shook my head, declining to interfere. The senator always has his way, captain, was all I could say. The troubled foreigner turned to Drumlung, the man whom he had really come to Oklahoma to see. The old fellow was setting up a five-million-dollar refinery, but Drumlung offered even less encouragement. Oh, just say anything, he suggested. You don't have to make much of a speech. You really do know a little English. Je n'en sais rien, cried the captain pathetically. Je n'ai pu parler anglais. Je ne sais que des mots techniques. Gasoline. Pressure. Benzine. Temperature. Oil. Je ne sais que des simples phrases ordinaires. Je peux comprendre, mais... Better make a stab at it anyway, old Drumlung volunteered again. I'll help you out, sotto voce, if you get stuck. The band stopped screaming with a blast. From a dance hall somewhere up the street floated insidious ragtime. Almost imperceptibly, but certainly, the crowd swayed toward it. And the senator leaped to the speaker's stand. Men, he cried loudly, yet solemnly, there is with us tonight one who can urge you far better than myself to loyalty and cooperation, one who can better make you understand why your country asks you to subscribe to the Liberty Loan. This man has been in the thick of the European fight for three years. He has seen... He knows why you must win this war, and he is going to tell you. You understand to whom I refer. Your eyes are upon him. True, his speaking knowledge of our language is limited, but a real man can speak to real men with something besides words. In spite of the obstacles of being obliged to use a strange tongue, he is going to address you. 
He is not going to make a set speech. He is not prepared to make a set speech. As you know, his talk has not even been scheduled. But I feel he has a message for you. And so it is my great honor and my great privilege to introduce to you, and it will be your great honor and your great privilege to hear, the captain. The instantaneous answering murmur, swelled gradually to thunderous applause, might have come from one mighty throat. And the volume of the cheer lifted the captain to his feet. Now I give you my word that he was white and shaken and dumb for all his fine, proud soldier bearing. He did sway toward the crowd hungrily with something like eagerness and sadness in his eyes. If only I could talk to you. If only I could make you understand, they seemed to say. But I assure you he was utterly at a loss for speech. So he wheeled to the senator, flinging out one hand in a gesture which was pleading for release. But by a queer trick of fate, his action was metamorphosed. To all intents and purposes, his flung fingers only indicated majestically, almost touched, the two flags, American and French, which floated behind him at the back of the erected stand. And as the soldier's eyes followed his fingers, his feet took him backward a little until his hand clutched the two flags. Simply, and not unafraid, he united them, lifted them forward, high, and together. Unconsciously, he had symbolized whatever speech he could make whatever speech he could wish to make. How the crowd yelled then! Leave it to a crowd to catch the real dramatics of a gesture. Those men understood. Picture the scene if you can. The black-brown prairie stretching further than any I could treed like a forest with oil derricks, each burning its pipe of waste gas like a torch, and lighting the night wide with mystery and shadows and moon-colored smoke, the startling southern stars only arm-high overhead, the crude, less-than-two-year-old town, its houses just boxes, except for a skyscraper that lifted its skeleton to the sky, the granitic black crowd with white faces rainbowed by splashes of red and bright blue where Indians slouched, and up on the platform, that beautiful, big, blonde Frenchman touching two flags as a priest holds a cross. Even I leaped to my feet. As the shouting died, words were borne to the captain. I cannot say that he spoke like a man in a trance or under hypnotic control, although his voice, in the feather-still silence the crowd made, was indeed very low-pitched and perhaps a trifle monotonous, as blows of a hammer are. I cannot say his English was wholly correct, or his accent, or his grammar. 
but I am telling the truth that this man who could not speak English did speak it with earnest, uplifted simplicity and without any halting. My friends and allies, he said, men, I will speak to you. You are the fighters. I am the fighter. I speak to you man to the man. I tell you how it is that I am here. It is so very simple story. It is the very unimportant story, the part that is mine. But I tell it. Four years ago, I was the artist. I paint the pictures. My father was the rich man. I have everything. I travel. All over the continent I travel. But Greece I love the best, and the black forest of Germany. I have the friend in the black forest. I laugh with him. I paint the picture for him. I tell him of the affairs of my government. I have been the officier two years. He write me much. He asked me bring my friends who were in the officer to his lodge. We have the good time together. Then comes the war. I go to the fight. My home, it is in the northern part of France. My father has the gasoline business, the big gasoline business. The enemy comes straight to his plant. You know who leads him? my friend of the black forest. I have told him my father have the important papers. He gets them all. He tear our pictures. He take my sister to keep his house, to cook for his men. My sister works still for the Germans like the servant, and she have one baby. My brother have the wife and six children. He is killed at the first battle. The Germans take his land, his family. I hear that one of his little boys, five year old he was, do not salute the German officer. He forget. So, every time, five thousand francs they find the Moser. All the money they have goes so to the Germans. She is the beggar now. She work for the German. The first time I see the enemy come, I notice what is like the cloud before the regiment. It is the women and the little children that they put before the guns. So we French cannot fight. We cannot kill the women and the little children who scream before the big guns. We retreat. And then I say, the enemy is bad. The enemy is not good. We must beat this enemy. When I have the wounds, I see how the Germans hurt the hospital, the nurse, the church. I see they have no soul, the German army. And so I say another time, the enemy is not good.
When they retreat, they kill the trees. The trees. If they blow up the railroad, the bridge, to that I say, yes, that is war. But when they blow up everything, in the little small houses everywhere, and kill all the trees, then I say, the enemy is bad. I tell you from the heart that every Frenchman have the same or the worse reason to say, the enemy is bad. If I talk all the night to you, I cannot tell one little part of how well I know the enemy is bad. I do not say we are the good people, no. We were the decadent people, we French. The war is a fine thing to wake us up. We need the war, but we are not the bad people. We do not kill to kill. We do not destroy to destroy. No other big people do. No other big army do. But the German army do. Why do they fight, the Germans? I cannot know. They have the big, beautiful, rich country. All the world honored and loves them for what they achieve. They do not fight for some big thing like the religion. They fight to kill. So I say to you, the enemy must be whipped. We must whip the enemy. And do you notice? I say we. For no man lives in the small town any more. Each man lives in the world. The world is like the barrel of apples. Not any apple is safe if there is one rotten apple in the barrel. I say to you from the heart, win the war. I say from the heart, give the men. I say from the heart, give the money. It is the liberty loan you must subscribe to this night. The liberty loan? Can you not understand? I know you all make the big money. The men who dig the wells, the carpenter who builds the derrick, all make the eight, ten, the fifteen dollars a day. You blow in, as you say, hundred thousand dollar in one night sometime. I know, and if you have the cash in the hand, the ten, the twenty thousand dollar, you rather use it to dig another oil well than to buy the liberty loan. Is it not so? But I tell you from the heart, put the money in the liberty loan. The senator, he tell you why. I try to tell you why. I cannot speak, but you will understand. And you will do this. For a moment, the captain and the crowd gazed into each other. And then old Kiowa chief shuffled up to the booth. He was a big, fat, sloppy Indian, dressed in slouching moccasins and gray trousers, a purple-blue shawl snuggled over his shoulders, and a flame-colored rag circled his brow. He laid one great, red, pudgy paw on the tabletop, and with the other removed the rich Havana on which he had been sucking. 
I buy, he said loudly, one half of one million dollars of Liberty Bonds. And that burst the silence into a yell. How that crowd yelled. The men fought to the booth. They emptied their pockets. They promised. How they promised. The bonds sold to a figure that staggered us. When the excitement had lulled, I remarked to the Frenchman, That was a pretty good speech for a fellow who never before uttered a real paragraph of English. Old Drumlong said, aside to me, Now, really, that wasn't bad. He probably knows our lingo better than he realizes. And besides, I prompted him rather a bit. Couldn't you hear me? The young lawyer who was handling the bonds for the county, a suave little runt, began to orate on the psychology of the mob, his notion being that the crowd had not only inspired the captain to supreme effort, but had actually supplied him with the words of his talk, telepathically, so to speak. However, I caught the captain and the senator whispering under their flags, and I heard them laugh softly, a little like two wandering boys. Come, what does the captain think about his suddenly loosened tongue? I begged the senator to tell me. He doesn't know. He can't explain it. He says it was a miracle, his talk. He says he knows he couldn't do it again, even if he tried. Why were you laughing so queerly? Oh, the senator tried to be offhand. We were just recollecting how speech in strange tongues came to men in the Bible days. Remember? Of course, lightly, we don't believe there's anything supernatural in this sort of thing. But I noticed his eyes and the captain's met with a dazzling queer spark. End of The Captain and the Miracle <laughs>